welcome to the Zero Hour by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. My compatriot Ashley Stone is not here this week. She's out at RSA in San Francisco. If you are out there and listening in that fair city, please stop by our booth at 3111. We are in the hallway between the North and South Expo. We'd love to talk with you. All right, so this week's episode is with Laura Galante. She is the founder of Galante Strategies, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Uh, she is a member of our board of advisors, and she is um, a serious cybersecurity expert. For those of you who do not know who she is, um, she was part of the Mandiant team that exposed APT1 back in 2013. She has since gone on to work with the Ukrainian government in securing elections. And as if that weren't enough, she is now running for um, state delegate here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. All right. So without further ado, we're going to get into it with Laura Galante. We're going to talk about cyber espionage. We're going to talk about how foreign actors are now infiltrating um, private enterprise through social media. And then we'll get to a little bit about why she's decided to turn to politics and what are the policies she's running on. So without further ado, Laura Galante. Welcome back to the Zero Hour with Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And we are here with our guest, Laura Galante. Say hello. Hello. Thanks for having me down. Absolutely. Um, Laura Galante is the founder of Galante Strategies. Uh, she's also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And she's also running for state office here in Virginia. And she's on our board of advisors. Very happy to have you here. I appreciate it. All right. Well, why don't we start off with um, what you're doing at present with Galante Strategies? What has your team been focusing on? Has it been hardcore research or is it uh, in a more security consulting capacity? Just give us paint that picture for us. Yeah. Over the last year, we have been running the cyber part of the Ukrainian elections task force. So Ukraine is set to have the first round of presidential elections at the end of March. And as you would expect, the Russian government and military is very interested in the outcome of the Ukrainian elections. You don't say. <laughs> Surprising. <laughs> Shocker, right? When you have two hot wars going on in Ukraine, it, it makes perfect sense that you would be very interested in the outcome. So um, I, have a, I have a small team that is working on monitoring what happens throughout the election period here. And there is certainly quite a bit of um, heated exchange that has already begun, both in the more technical hacking realm in addition to kind of the information sphere. So we're looking at that closely. And then I will be over with a couple different governments in Europe over the next four or five months as both election season heats up and as governments, particularly smaller governments, have become interested in integrating their technical cyber strategy with the broader information security goals that um, are being demanded of, of these governments from their private sector, from their citizens, um, to say, how do we make sure that we have a democracy um, that is functional? How do we make sure that we have elections that feel secure and fair um, and do this, do this under an umbrella that's codified and sensical at a government level? Oh, so you're a little busy. <laughs> Just a little, <laughs> <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> um, well, you opened the door to Russia, so we'll walk through it. Um, 
It's been in the news a lot. We've talked about Russian disinformation through our own research. Um, we are now also, as a country, talking about um, Huawei switches for 5G networks and sensitivities there and vulnerabilities. And I would say, in general, it feels like we, the country that um, invented social media and kind of innovated around internet technology, have been caught on the back foot, as it were, about preparing for these new types of threats. Feels like um, with Iraq and Afghanistan that we have spent the last 20 years essentially fighting conventional warfare. And now even when we discuss either nation state actors or cybersecurity in general, we talk about sort of hard hacks, hacking the grid. I feel like we're stuck in like 1998 and <laughs> we're we just have been left behind in terms of thinking about this in the right way. I like how you framed up the problem, George. I think here's here's how I would put it. It's much easier to to set a red line. It's much easier to respond to cyber attacks that have a kinetic or a real world component to them, right? Hacking the power grid. Well, you can hack the power grid or you can drop a bomb on the power grid. You still need to figure out how to respond, right? So those have been much more concrete areas for U.S. policymakers, for the U.S. government, for the Department of Defense. What's happened and where where I think you rightfully pick up on this um sort of left on our uh, left on our back foot or, or a little bit behind is in this broader information sphere that has a psychological component to it. And when you look back to what Russia, for instance, um, planned out for years, but a, a bunch of other countries too, including Iran, they saw that the ability to manipulate public opinion wasn't a um, distinct area of cybersecurity. It was very much a twin pillar of how the internet could be used and would be used. And they were willing to invest uh, with with a very different government structure, right? They're very willing to invest in how to think about and deal in that psychological realm, how to put down dissent in, in their own countries, um, how to change uh, political dynamics in, in other countries to make it difficult to respond. So these psychological... Um, weapons and environments where where other countries have felt very comfortable dealing over the last four or five, six years in particular, uh, are places where we're only now, or a tool that we're only now in the U.S. Um, grappling with in a, in a more systematic way. The hard part here is we have a very uh, – uh, alive tech sector. We have a very distinct kind of public dialogue from what happens in the government. And, and rightfully so. We're, we're built on on the distinction that the government doesn't get involved um, in, in corporate policy and the government doesn't get involved in, in um, freedom of speech issues, right? Besides to preserve freedom of speech. So at this point, I think our goal needs to be, particularly in the U.S., for companies, for people to understand that the information environment that they're dealing in, whether that's their newsfeed or whether that's how they think about threats to their corporate network and, and their employees, is much broader and much um, more complex than just will someone hack our corporate network or is someone going to steal my credit card online? Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So, yeah, and I think we're moving here from understanding there are certain um, 
geopolitical events. There are countries looking to use uh, information warfare to disrupt. There are also those seeking, um, as we saw way back with APT1, uh, nation states also using it to actively steal information in order to get um, some economic benefit out of us. And so recently, I think we've seen a, um, a confluence of these events uh, with the report that McAfee released last year with Operation Sharpshooter, right? We saw what appears to be, and not hard attributed, to nation state actors using social media to also exfiltrate. So we're seeing this constantly evolving threat landscape. Can you give us a little historical context? I mean, as somebody who first wrote about APT1, how you see this uh, this evolution? Mm-hmm. So intellectual property theft or, or, or hacking research and development from companies is something that was has been taking place for, for now, you know, over 10 years, right? And we have good proof points behind that. And in 2013 was really the year when hacking of IP, economic espionage uh, by the Chinese military and the Chinese government came into high relief in in the public's eye. And and we did this attribution report back when I was at Mandiant called APT1, as you mentioned, George, um, that was foundational in, in people understanding that there was a uh, designated military unit behind behind IP theft and behind hacking corporate networks. It doesn't feel like that that um, long ago, but at that time, the understanding that people were behind this, that militaries were putting money behind it, that um, corporate targets were going to be compromised, not just your standard kind of um, country-on-country espionage against diplomats mm. or military officials, right? This was going deep into the private sector. This was the energy industry, um, financial industry, pharmaceuticals, right? The the real bedrock of of the U.S. economy and in in global and corporate multinationals, and um, by. By 2013, when we really exposed the depth of this and the actor behind it, which which was China, um, what happened was companies started to wake up and see that this wasn't an IT department issue. This was a board level issue. This was existential, to put it in in kind of dramatic terms. But companies went out of business. I mean, Westinghouse yep. Nuclear went out of business. Um, solar S- panels stakes are real. The stakes yeah. were real. Solar panels became real cheap by 2015. I wonder why. Right? We'd seen solar companies hacked for years. Um, vaccines were becoming um, you know openly available and places where they never could be afforded before. Now, look, that's actually a good outcome, you know, (laughs) arguably of some of this. But the point was um, the the threat to corporations was very real and is very real. And uh, to kind of keep going down this historical arc, by 2015 and 2016, we had seen a very significant drop off in all of these different advanced persistent threat groups, these hacking Mm -hmm. groups coming out of China. And the question became, you know, did that exposure combined with government action over the years, like like naming some of the Chinese military officials who were behind this, did that work 
did hacking change? Are we just not seeing it now? What was that? What happened by 2015, 2016? And I, I think the answer is we we were seeing a real retooling of how China was going to approach this issue. Costs had been imposed to, right. to do this so openly to have thousands of people behind it, right? And and the U.S. was really mad along with Britain and a, and a, you know, a bunch of other countries. And uh, what sharpshooter? What this what this report that came out in the end of 2018 um, that documents a different type of uh, compromise of, of corporations from likely Chinese actors. What this starts to show us and what it's a good example of is how over the last year or two, Chinese Chinese military and industry objectives must continue to be pursued, right? China still needs the the R&D. They still need um, the competitive advantage in a lot of cases to, to propel their economy forward, and their economy is very linked to national security. And what, what Sharpshooter illustrates is that the uh, – the way that you get into a company, the way that you hack corporate networks, and the way that you conduct economic espionage needed to change and it needed to look different. In this case, the vector was completely different. Spear phishing, sending an email out to a company was by far for years the way that that these different groups got into corporate networks. Well, what we saw with Sharpshooter was a much more indirect and kind of thoughtful and more insidious way to do this, which was go into LinkedIn, go into a social network and drop a suspicious link, which doesn't look very suspicious to the to the target. Right. And they download that link. Maybe it says job description here in the yeah. case of Sharpshooter. Right. And suddenly they're sitting there on their work computer having checked LinkedIn and guess what? Yeah. And we, we saw that also in uh, recently and at the end of the year, um, I think a group that looked a lot like the Lazarus group, uh, but it was confirmed to be North Korea had essentially done the same thing to an employee at uh, Red Bank, which is the entire ATM network of Chile and essentially got access to the full ATM network. But it was a, a mid-level uh, software developer answered an ad on LinkedIn, did a full Skype interview, had to download like application loader.exe and ran it. And there it went. Yeah. Yep. It's it's smart. It's an indirect way to get into a network, go through the employees, right? right. The the carbon element has always been the yeah. most the most easy to compromise, whether it's you know manipulate, manipulating your mind or getting into a corporate network. And we're just seeing that explode. And in particular at Safeguard, we're seeing that explode in terms of a targeting vector for companies. Yeah, and I think we see. So, yeah, we've moved out of the geopolitical where most people might read the news with some level of concern, but feels like it's not touching them directly. Um, come back to APT1 where it is affecting corporations uh, quite directly, um, sometimes to the point where they're run out of business. And then now this moment where it's beginning to come together. And so if you were uh, talking with CISOs, how do you educate them at the board level? Like... Yes, keep up, keep up. We, we, you've great. You've uh, gotten on board with the fact that nation states are trying to get into your network at a persistent level. Now, here's the new, the new way they're going to do it. How are you? If you are an American Express and you've got a hundred thousand employees, that I mean, the threat just magnifies. Uh, every employee's got probably at a bare minimum three social networks right, um, right. on their own. Um, yeah, it just must be. How do we break through this education gap? Well, look, we're all on defense 
in this game, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that that's the reality, right? So anyone at the board level or below who thought one day our problem of hacking is going to be solved, solved. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know that that person exists anymore. Uh, but but certainly that dream is uh, is 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 stale, mm-hmm. right? So in terms of thinking about this as, as defense, we need to uh, make sure that people understand how the risk and threat landscape has changed, right? And what does due diligence look like? If you're a board and you know that you've had a policy for years of bring your own device, right? I mean, what company doesn't at this point, right? right? Bring your own device for email. Um, Feel free to have a LinkedIn profile and social media profile. I'm going to stop trying to stop you from using Facebook at lunch. Right, (laughs) right. Good luck, you know. Um, So, so... That liability is something that we've taken on in the corporate sector for years. And as we as we typically like to do, right, we, we kind of got excited by the new technology that was there and extending people's ability to work from home and, mm-hmm. you know, have have these broader um, workspaces and, and professional profiles and what have you. But we have to reason with and deal with uh, the dark side of that. And the dark side of that is we have a much larger vulnerability base and and a much higher level of exposure to, to digital risk. And what does that mean? It means that um, when you're thinking about your security profile as a company, right, and what and what you what you need to value most, employee privacy, uh, the actual crown jewels of your operation, um, business planning, you need to think of the perimeter. As as the human perimeter and and even the social perimeter of what your company stands for, and that means looking across different channels. We keep talking about LinkedIn and Facebook, but you know even even the chat, the internal chat between your Salesforce, right? The um, discussion between your developers that are sometimes on four continents now. How are people? That's right. You drop in a oh check out this link in Slack is just a you know minor distraction, and that is a phishing link or what have you, you know, how do you and freeze someone's that in out? the network, right? That's right? So we have to think broadly about the risk here. And that's been good risk management practice for years. But now we've really seen, as you're saying, a crystallization around these social vectors and these other channels being the perfect place and the perfect um, attack surface for the next generation of corporate and enterprise level threats. Okay. Um, I wanted to return to this idea. I think, you know, corporations obviously have an economic incentive to keep up with the threat landscape. Um, but an interesting, uh, what would I call it? Asymmetry that's sort of just happened um, by virtue of all this new technology is that nowadays CMOs have a larger share of IT budget than CISOs, uh, for better or for worse. I think that speaks a lot to the role that technology plays in marketing. Um, you know, the CMO is now in some places de facto chief digital officer also because of the uh, tech stack that they manage. Um, so if that's, if that's where the money is going, does that um, either shift responsibilities to the CMO in some places for security or does that uh, necessitate a better working relationship. So where, where does the change need to come to manage that new threat landscape? Is it in like, um, 
formally moving responsibilities and saying, CMO, by the way, you're in charge of cyber on social? Or is that, um, what is the best practice there? And I think that's probably still being defined as we speak. Certainly. I think it's a fascinating statistic that CMOs are are becoming um, more and more and now increasingly the place where where cybersecurity and a brand security discussion has to take place, right? But this is bigger than brand. And mm-hmm. I and I think that's what you're yeah. you're circling around here, right? Um this is about how someone or a group of people at the company need to be thinking about security as not a distinct um, discipline, but is something that is the uh, other side of the coin, coin to whatever their work is, right? Yes, you're yes, you're developing um, playbooks and sales assets, and you know, developing a sales force in four countries or what have you, right? As a CMO, but guess what? There's also a thought around um, what does the overall strategy around uh, our brand reputation in some of these countries where we're selling look like should uh you know our product become become stigmatized or mm. or um degraded in some format in in the public's eye so i think that um what we're going to see is security and the way that you talk about digital risk and um, your own portfolio as an executive sitting on a board is going to need to have two sides. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, product guys could get around could get around this, right? By saying, here are the new features to what I'm doing. You know, your kind of engineering staff could just talk about the next um, bells and whistles that would come out, whatever your product mm-hmm. is, candy bars to software, right. right? Here's the next cool thing. And they got to be the exciting, sunshiny person on the board. They still get to, but now you have to take into account a broader calculation around what are the liabilities around adding some of this. Mm-hmm. Are we exploiting people's data if we did X, Y, and Z, right? So I I think we're just having a little bit of a humbling moment writ large in, in the corporate sector to take security as big of that is as a concept into into the into our process of innovation and into our process of corporate governance. Yeah, I think we talk about um a like a building a culture of accountability across the organization mm-hmm. or taking a team-based approach and just really got to put to bed the idea that security is just this like one part of the IT department. That's their purview. That's what they worry about. That if you aren't educating your community managers fresh out of college, don't click on, you know, <laughs> right. these things. Or when you see certain levels of what would normally have been called like troll activity that they that may in fact need to be a flag raised to the security team because maybe there's a uh, disinformation campaign targeting your particular product. Yeah, I think that's we're just living through a transition right now. I think so. And and we don't have to beat ourselves up over this too much, right? We've had a massive digital transformation over the last, you know, generation, right? Um, we're all sitting around this table, and, you know, and aren't too old. I'll flatter us. And we remember days before cell phones, right? Yeah. I re- so- I re- yes, I was just talking about I have distinct and clear memories of life before the internet. <laughs> right. 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 So, you know, the transformations happened before our eyes, right? And it's been exciting and, you know, hugely profitable to a lot of companies and people. But there's been a dark side to this. Mm -hmm. And and we're finally starting to, I think, get the balance right um, in the boardroom and, and along down. So it's an attunement. It's a way of thinking. And it's a maturing of our attitudes towards um, broader, broader policy and 
the way we live our lives in a digital age. Yeah, and I think that's also a generational issue that we have um, two distinct generations, at, at the very least, kind of sitting in positions of power. You have those who intimately understand how this technology works. And then I think as you saw when Zuckerberg had to testify before Congress, with people with their hands on the levers of power who basically don't understand how this technology that everyone uses at least three times a day even fundamentally works. Right. And I'm sure there are intelligence and military professionals who've been sounding this alarm for years. We're talking about that education gap. So what's it going to take to raise the consciousness of cybersecurity at the legislative level? So yes, uh, there, there have been many of us, I'll, I'll put myself <laughs> in that gray beard category today, but um, there have been many people who have been warning about digital risk and about cybersecurity for 20 plus years at this point, to even go back to, to the 90s, right? right. And uh, I think that we have seen a steady uh, upping of people's awareness around this space, right? I mean, just in just in the last 10 years, I think we've gone from people realizing that this isn't just some, you know, Nigerian prince asking for your bank account. <laughs> this is a, this is much more serious and systematic. And people well, there are there. I mean, I think that I'm just going to say it's funny that there are probably people listening to this that don't understand the reference to the Nigerian prince. But I will leave that to Google. Uh, to, to teach good. them about that old scam. Maybe but, it'll happen to you soon. That's, that's right. Check your spam folder because I right. think they're still at it. Um, right. So, uh, your long lost relative who's about to give you ten million dollars if only you respond to that email. That's right. Um, but yes, I I do think that uh, despite. Despite the memes that come out of you know a good Senate Senate hearing or, or congressional hearing around uh, around how much some people don't understand the tech environment, I think writ large we're doing better in getting how much cybersecurity matters. Uh, I think that the wake up calls in that trajectory have been sadly big crises, conflicts, and exposure. So. You know, when I when I think back to a couple inflection points over the last 10 years, I think a lot of the corporate um, retail breaches, TJ Maxx and Home Depot, you know, those where people knew where they shopped and they remembered their credit card being resent to that, you know, canceled and then resent to them. Those made a big impact in people's understanding that this was something that was hitting their literal wallets. Um, when we think of the government side. Uh, that's where I think policymakers had to wake up when we mm -hmm. had the OPM, the Office of Personnel and Management yeah. breach, um, now almost five years ago. Um, but in that breach, everyone's security clearances that were held in the government were basically exposed, right? That's an enormous right. wake up. Um, if you have any, if you're a policymaker and you're sitting on any of the authority around that, right? And then I think 2016 is in, in the Russia um, interference in the election was perhaps the biggest wake up and confusion point in the space, right? I think we're still yeah. grappling with the realization that um, the psychological aspect of cyberspace and of the information space is something that will have concerted and has always had concerted efforts behind it. 
it was just much harder to recognize when it was coming through feeling very organic in your mm-hmm. in your news feed and wherever right. else you got right so uh, there's nothing new about psychological manipulation you know it's it's been happening since cavemen were were drawing pictures or what have you but i think how we recognize it and how um and how we respond to it and what that looks like at a legislative and policy issue is the conversation that we're finally now having um thank god and yes. in in, in is the next iteration of, um, of, of how we deal with innovation in this space. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we have now officially crossed into the, into the political realm. So we'll go ahead and, and pursue the line of questioning. So you have chosen to run for state delegate here in Virginia. And I, I'm just curious as to, um, what helped you make that leap crossing over from a profession in which you have, uh, interfaced and talked with um, political leaders for a long time to wading in yourself. Yes, so I'm running for the House of Delegates here in Virginia in the 18th District. So that's most of Fauquier County and Rappahannock, mm-hmm. the Piedmont area. And uh, my my reason in getting into this race was, you know, we we talk about cybersecurity in these broad terms. We talk about national security in these broad terms, right? But I think what has happened over the years is that we've put so much energy into these huge national and international dialogues that people, especially out where I live, have have gotten a sense that um, solving everyday issues in front of you, which in my area is getting actual internet with fiber you know, right. <laughs> in the ground versus satellite internet, right? Yeah. Um, it is the kind of thing that, that government doesn't do anymore and that policymakers don't care about. And I think that's completely wrong. Right. Broad so, strokes instead of on the ground instead of problem solving things that are in front of people's face right and problems that were that that we've neglected in a lot of cases for years let's look at healthcare in particular the affordability around it um so i'm really interested in uh rebuilding trust in government by by seeing that there are solutions that are much broader and more creative than I think what we've dealt with. And a lot of those are public-private partnerships and figuring out how we um, position people for a, for a really strong place in our future economy. And we have to grapple with the tech that underlies all of that. And we need policymakers who can ask the right questions um, around the, the workforce changes that are coming and can can deal with tech in a way that doesn't see it as some distinct scary concept, but as an underlying trend of, of how people will live and work um, and interact for the next 50 years. So that's, that's a, a long answer to tell you why I'm running, but I, I'm really excited to, to put my hands kind of into this race to figure out if, um, if, if the appetite is there and is strong for, for someone who wants to go solve problems again and do it with an eye uh, towards our future workforce. Yeah. That, I mean, I personally lived on a cattle farm um, in Greene County, right up against the uh, national park border. And um, when we moved out there, you had to get satellite internet. And um, it was weird to not be able to email well or even <laughs> fill something out when it was too cloudy. Right, <laughs> so, right. Well, I can't I can't submit that grad school application because it's supposed to storm tonight. This <laughs> is like that was the reality of where I lived. 
And it's that kind of calculation that's that's really tough to attract professionals out to some of these areas. But also for people who want to, you know, apply for a job. You're saying mm-hmm. apply for grad school. Apply for a job. Get homework done. Um, yeah. Go check what doctors are, are in the area that are open tomorrow, right? The basics that you just take for granted when internet feels like a utility that's always been there – it's it's really holding back huge parts of Virginia in a state that invented the internet. Right, and it's a it's a huge contradiction that you know they'll give these grants to um, rural school districts or Title One schools and say you need to here's a grant to like improve um, using technology in the classroom, and then they'll do something like put homework online, or they'll use Google Forms or Google Drive, or Blackboard, and, yeah, and right. it's like, but then you can't access it at home. So right. good luck doing your homework right. um, properly. Um, yeah, and I think also uh, maybe helping um, this idea that you're going to have this brain drain out of these areas, right? Because people have to move or they have to commute from where you're living into DC or Arlington to, to just do the work that's going to provide the income necessary to raise a family. Because if you were to stick around in these counties and what were you going to do work local retail, if you didn't own your own business, you know, it's like, it's kind of a catch 22. Um, But as you'd said earlier, we live in a world in which you should be able to commute from just about anywhere um, at least to log on your to keyboard. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> well, I, th- I think that's part of it. The other piece that's exciting in the district where I am is we have a lot of smaller agriculture enterprises who now with, with the internet mm-hmm. are able to get direct to consumer quickly. So let's say you're a greenhouse in Culpeper County, which there, there are a bunch of new ones, right? Mm-hmm. And you're growing tomatoes and lettuce, right? You can get to consumer hubs in Fairfax County and Arlington in five, six hours, right? Mm-hmm. With well-grown produce um, that that is scratching the demand for local, sustainable, and, and well-grown um, food. So we do need to think about what jobs make sense locally yeah. um, in rural areas. And I think we've got a huge opportunity in agriculture. And the demand, you know, I'll, I'll give you a story you know, from my, my son's bowling alley party the other day. We're looking at the menu. This is just kind of a grungy random bowling alley, right? We're looking at the menu and it's like um, burgers, sustainably humanely raised grass-fed burgers, right? <laughs> You're at the bowling alley. This is right. not, you know, like some gourmet spot in DC. So yeah, I think farm to table bowling. <laughs> yeah, farm to bowling fit. But um I I think that people want to see um they want to see local economies thrive. They want to shop local hashtag. They want to eat local. Um, and and we need to just think about what that looks like and how do we build a system um you know, broadly, that incents good local business and allows for small towns and communities to really thrive and doesn't make this a zero sum game of move to the suburbs in the city or or be or, cast to the side. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I agree with that. I also think that that's, I mean, that's very much in line with what we're trying to do as a technology provider to see technology as an enablement tool instead of just this like, shiny squeaky means thing. to an end yeah right, it's just right. like this thing that you overlay onto things but it's something that can fundamentally change a process or in this case an economy um yeah i think it's i think the agricultural sector is poorly stereotyped um 
I remember I did my undergraduate thesis in Brazil and you had these massive farms, hundreds of thousands of acres. And this was 2003 and they had these unmanned threshers mm -hmm. uh, that would use laser guided uh, grids. They basically put all these posts along the farm and they create a grid system upload some GPS coordinates and this giant robot essentially goes and, harvest, and right? yeah. yeah. And no one was doing that here that I knew of, or that may be part of the problem that we just didn't hear about technological applications in agriculture. Ag is one of the most innovative sectors ever. It has right? to be. It's a constant uh, problem and the farmers buy at retail and sell at wholesale. So how do you keep those costs under control? And get more money back in farmers' pockets, right? Yeah. I mean, how do you get the direct-to-consumer sort of holy grail in farming, right? Um, but, you know, you look back at the U.S.'s record broadly on agriculture, we figured out how to feed the world post-World War mm -hmm. II. You know, this is a sector where um, we said, how do we increase the yield of everything from beef to soy and carrots? And, and we did it. And I think we're sitting here on the cusp of another similar revolution in ag um, with some of the tools that you talked about, but with precision agriculture techniques that guess what? Rely on having the internet, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it, it really is a platform for everything. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, not just, not just the U S but I think that there's a, a, a bunch of um, players who are saying, when you look down the line, even five years from now, we need to figure out how to feed everybody. We need to figure out how to um, make sure that farmland is is still there, that we don't have massive droughts and, and fights over resources, which are basically what so many wars boil down to when you get down to it, right? And the way that we do that is we start implementing and using some of the really innovative stuff that's coming down in the ag sector. And that's going to be started, part of the key to climate change. It's going to be part of the key to um, – more equitable futures in in kind of the global south and across the world. So, um, I I really think ag is a is an interesting vector to kind of think through the future future of the economy and how tech underlays but isn't distinct from so many of those next turns in our economy. To kind of get back to your point of how do we how do we think about tech, but even you know. Disc, uh, risk protection in a broader sense of, of what do we want our economy and what do we want our world to be in the next five, 10 years? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think with my stomach about like 80% of the day so <laughs> <laughs> makes sense to me. And also, yes, to like, let's shamelessly bring it back to cybersecurity. If you think about these massive um, uh, farms that are essentially networked, it's like a perfect internet of things operation. Mm -hmm. And let's, you know, dial it back to the cold war. All the missiles were pointed at the Midwest, right? And all our missiles were pointed at Ukraine because it was like attack the, the breadbasket, yep. right? Yep. So bread basket. Good. Um, what if, I mean, that seems to be another frontier of cyber that I'm sure somebody has thought through, but when they write the farm bill, they definitely probably not thought probably, through like cyber threats. Probably not front of mind. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll, um, I'll leave you with a story that hit me hard out of, out of Kiev when I've been working with the Ukrainian government there. We're talking about – this was last year in 2018. We were talking about all sorts of, of threat vectors that they were seeing from, from the Russian government after Ukraine. And before I left the room, an official stopped me and said, Laura, remember the lesson of 1917? 
Well, and I looked at him and said, there's about 50 lessons from 1917, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, that was a big year. Ukrainian, big, big yeah. year. Again, Google it if you're, if, you're, if you're lost on this, right? But, um, but he said, it started with bread. And his point is, his point was, the Russian Revolution started with bread lines. And, and you know, to go, to go more broadly, it's where you can really hit people is, is mm-hmm. in the gut, quite literally, in yeah. the stomach. And if you're able to orchestrate global conflicts around uh, whether people can eat or not, I mean, that's, uh, that is the absolute nightmare scenario that, mm-hmm. that we're dealing with here. But it's not off the table. And that was his point. You know, just keep in mind how devastating and how quickly things fall apart and what those targets look like. And let's not have to get there. Right? That's right. You know, how do yeah. how do we stay you, you, four or five yeah. rugs from even having to think about yeah. not being able to harvest food? That's right? right. Yeah. You don't need to um you don't need to actually hack the ballot box if you can just inspire panic around food prices or um, put information out or there. Energy that, costs. Yeah, or, yep, yeah right. the banks are collapsing. Um all right, so we'll uh we'll start to wind this down. Our tagline is without fear, as you know. Um, cyber is full of fear. We've talked about some scary things, but we, we still try to look um, at technology with hope and, and the idea that it empowers rather than subtracts. Um, so we normally ask uh, what keeps you up at night, and I, I suspect that among our guests you have more than enough to keep <laughs> you up at night, maybe even things that you can't legally share with us. Um so let's start with the fear, but we'll end with the hope. I'll just call, you know, tell the, the listeners, don't worry, we're not going to go out on a bummer. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, of that vein, the reason that I am um, waking up in the middle of the night the last few nights is we have one of our sheep at my farm is just about to lamb. So I go out and check that I don't have a you know a lamb half out of a sheep in the middle of the night. So, right. so uh, <laughs> who needs help? So, so uh, you know, on a, on, a, on a better note of, of what keeps me up. But um, I think that we are uh, on the right path broadly to, to thinking about how we integrate security in with the rest of our practices as people and in, in corporations and governments, right? And that's why I like without fear as a tagline, um, because I think I think what you're saying without without putting it in 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 a non marketing slogan is that this is just part of how you do business. Yeah. I mean, as, we're not turning back the clock, you know, right. any company that's like, well, yeah. can't bring your phones to work. It's just like, that's not a thing. It's not going to happen. Yeah. We're right. not going to stop going online and checking our profiles. It's that this threat has to be acknowledged and dealt with and mitigated. Right. And that's why I really like the approach here at safeguard. And I think it's a very rational and, um, and reasoned way to go about all of the changes that we're looking at. And I think there's no better partner, I'll, I'll shamelessly say it, than Safeguard Cyber when it comes to um, how you consider this broader perimeter that we keep talking talking about, um, which is risks to your information and your employees and in places that you wouldn't expect and channels that you wouldn't expect. Okay. And then, um, all right, you got to combine both fear and hope, which is probably like, as it's like the perfect Zen state for cyber. I mean, I'm I'm sure that some CISOs stay awake more than others. Um, but eventually you gotta, you gotta be able to, uh, file it away. Otherwise you go crazy. Um, well, thank you very much for taking the time. Always a pleasure to have you here in the office, AKA, uh, the zero hour studio. Um, so yeah, thanks for taking the time and uh, best of luck uh, with the uh, the race this year. 
great being here. Thank you both for the time. It was a fun discussion. Thank you. Needless to say, it's always a pleasure talking with uh, Laura Galante. We really appreciate her perspective um, when it comes to translating what sometimes feel like geopolitical concerns into the implications for the private sector. I think it's easy to listen to some of these stories about disinformation or about cyber warfare and think that it's relegated to a political sphere when in fact it is impacting um, American enterprise, it's impacting um, our allies, and it's impacting our elections. Um, Some other news stories that we are listening to and paying attention to this week, um, following up at the end of last week on a story that Facebook and Instagram are suing four Chinese companies for selling fake accounts, fake likes, fake followers. Um, It would appear that the social networking giant is trying to take the fight to the source. Um, They have also said that they are using advanced AI to detect fake accounts and taking some down sometimes within minutes of creation. Um, So they are investing in the technology and also legal means to go after it. Of course, this um, doesn't mean quite as much to brands per se insofar as a brand has to manage a cross-channel digital presence. So um, however good the fight is that Facebook is waging, that may not necessarily um, have implications or benefits for what's happening to that brand on Twitter, YouTube, etc. So um, brands continue to look for cross-channel solutions. Um, another big story out of the, uh, Europe on the flip side of that same debate is that the EU Commissioner for the Security Union, Sir Julian King, and the Commissioner for Digital Economy and Society, Maria Gabrielle, have an op-ed in The Guardian about how Facebook, Twitter, and Google have fallen short of their expectations with respect to combating fake news and misinformation on their platforms. Um, they do give a bit of a, th- a mild thumbs up to to Google's um, January reporting about uh, ad placements, etc., but they say more needs to be done uh, with particular ire directed at Facebook and Twitter. And last, but certainly not least, this week, McAvee has followed up on their reporting from last December with respect to what they call Operation Sharpshooter, which was a seemingly state-backed cyber espionage campaign to infiltrate at the time 87 uh, businesses and uh, government agencies using a social infiltration technique that delivered a payload that then delivered a second uh, payload to establish a backdoor and exfiltration. Well, as it turns out, the government has seized a command and control server used in that attack and um, in a rare display of cooperation, handed the server over to McAfee for analysis, and they were able to confirm that all things being equal, it does appear to be connected to the Lazarus Group, which is a North Korea-backed hacking organization. So tune in more for that. Uh, It's a story that we're following very closely. Um, But until then, uh, we will see you in two weeks when we will have two shows. It's a bonus week. Um, with episodes recorded live at RSA, which is going on this week, and at the Cloud and Cybersecurity Expo in London, which is happening next week. As ever, thank you to my co-host Ashley Stone, our sound designer Abby Bruce, and to Matthias Zeffaletti for our theme music. 
Until next time, this is The Zero Hour by Safeguard Cyber, signing off.